Good morning again. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to Habakkuk chapter 3. This morning we're going to be finishing up our series in the book of Habakkuk. Next week we'll be back in uh, the book of Matthew. I'm trying something a little new this morning. I'm, at, I'm trying, you know, all the cool guys preach from iPads. So I'm going to give it a shot, uh, but I'm just warning you, uh, if I have, I have uh, my notes in paper form. So if I feel like it's, it's not working or something happens, uh, we'll see. So, so we're doing this together for the first time. Um, also, if my hair looks crazy, I know, and you can blame Gavin Newsom. It's his fault. So we, we have no one else to blame. <laughs> but let's get started this morning. Let, let, would you pray with me? as we ask God's blessing on our time together. Heavenly Father, what a strange, strange time this is. But Father, in the midst of everything else that is is different right now, everything else that is changing, your word remains true and steadfast. So Father, now as we open your word together, um, even over the internet. Father, would you, like you always do, speak powerfully to us through it. Father, your words are life to us. So, Father, we, we bank on that promise this morning. If you don't speak to us, you don't speak through me, through your word, then nothing happens. So father work powerfully this morning through the power of your word so that we may know you more deeply, your son, Jesus Christ, and the power of your Holy spirit for your glory. And for our edification, we ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Well, pastor Tim Keller writes this. This is an encouraging way to start a sermon. No matter what precautions we take, no matter how well we have put together a good life, no matter how hard we have worked to be healthy, wealthy, comfortable with friends and families, and successful with our career, something will inevitably come and ruin it. And that's true. That that may sound discouraging. You may not want to believe it's true, but it's true. Some of you are probably especially feeling that truth right now. I mean, how many people do you know that out of nowhere because of this pandemic have all of a sudden lost their job or lost, maybe they're furloughed, they still have uh, some health insurance, but their paychecks have stopped coming. Stock market has crashed, retirement accounts, all that, everything removed in an instant. This is true. No matter how hard we work for the things that we want, inevitably, something can and often does come along and ruin it. And, and, and our prophet Habakkuk this morning can certainly testify to this truth. And the reality is that, that no one escapes suffering in this life. Nobody. And every religion talks about suffering, right? Because it's just a, a truth of human existence, Every one of the world's religions and philosophies teaches something different, though, about suffering, what it is, where it comes from, how 
to deal with it. Here are just some quick examples. Buddhism uh, teaches essentially, this is a simplification, but essentially that suffering, that pain is an illusion. It's not real. And so the, and it, it all stems from desire. And so the way to overcome suffering is to realize that it's not real. Religions that teach karma teach that suffering is fair and always deserved. So if you're suffering, it's because you did something wrong, either in this life or in a past life. Secularism teaches that suffering is meaningless. It's random. It happens just because with, with no meaning behind it and no redemptive value. But amidst all these and all the other world religions, Christianity is different because Christianity is utterly unique in how it deals with suffering. The scriptures are honest about suffering. In, In fact, suffering is at the heart of the Christian story. It's at the heart of the story of scripture. The Bible is full of different people who suffer in many different times in different ways and for different reasons. There's 150 Psalms in the book of Psalms, about a third of which are Psalms of lament or Psalms of mourning. Another way to put that. We have a whole book in the scriptures called lamentations. And if you've never read that, it's literally just five chapters of suffering. It's dark. The prophet Jeremiah describes the siege of Jerusalem, the siege. Okay. By the way, if you were watching Wednesday night, apparently I say that word wrong. Siege is correct. So I will try to say that. Uh, The the prophet Jeremiah describes the siege of Jerusalem by the Chaldeans. and, And it's awful. It's terrible, great suffering and pain. Even the one that, that we call God and savior, the Christ, Jesus, the son of God is known by his suffering. He was brutally tortured and killed unjustly by wicked men. The apostles all led lives of suffering and all were eventually killed for their faith. Just like their savior. All of the prophets suffered. Habakkuk as we have seen, is one of those people in scripture who suffers. So as we think about this idea of suffering and how it interacts with our faith, let's turn to Habakkuk and see how his story ends. Now, now so, so far, we've seen Habakkuk complain to God. And essentially what he started off asking is, God, why are you allowing injustice and wickedness to run rampant amongst your people here in Judah. And God's response, you might remember was, I'm not actually, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, the Babylonians to come and destroy Judah as my judgment. That is what I'm doing to handle that situation. And then Habakkuk responded. We saw last week with essentially saying, whoa, 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 whoa. How can you do that? That that's, that's not what I wanted. I mean, I wanted judgment, but not that kind of judgment. That's, that's not fair. The, the Chaldeans are way more wicked than we are. How can you use them as a tool of your righteous judgment? 
How can you prosper them while your own people will suffer? And God's response was Habakkuk. The righteous will live by his faith. In other words, Habakkuk, trust me. I know this doesn't make sense, but trust me in the midst of this suffering. In fact, I'm going to judge the Chaldeans as well for every sinful action they commit and for every evil desire in their heart. But in the meantime, trust me. But, but of course, this, this is kind of the cliffhanger. That's where we ended last week. Because this whole book has been a, a back and forth between Habakkuk and God. And so now the question is, how does Habakkuk finally respond to all of this? Well, that's what we see in chapter three. Chapter three is his final response. But before we get into the details of the text, let's, let's take a look at there. There's a, there's a superscription. Look at, look at verse one, verse one. Here's what verse one says. A prayer of Habakkuk, the prophet, according to Shigionoth. Now that's obviously not an English word. And, and scholars are not exactly sure what Shigionoth means. It's kind of like Selah. If you've ever read the Psalms and it, Actually, Selah appears a lot here in, in Habakkuk chapter 3. Um, Shigionoth is, is either something straight out of Lovecraft, and if you know, you know, um, or it's probably a, some type of Hebrew musical term. The very last words of Habakkuk chapter 3, if you look down at the very last words in, in verse 19, say, to the choir master with stringed instruments. And so combine that uh, with the only other place we see this word Shigianoth in scripture, which is in Psalm 7, which says a Shigian, same word of David, which he sang to the Lord concerning the words of Cush of Benjamite. We, we can deduce that Habakkuk chapter three is a song. It, it's some type of musical term that they would have known. So maybe it's a tune. Uh, maybe it's a, it's, it's some type of direction to the musical conductor to the worship leader. So Habakkuk chapter three is a prayer, but it's also a song. It's meant for God's people to sing. Habakkuk's response to all that he has heard from God, these difficult truths that he's been wrestling with and that have been revealed to him is to write a song. Habakkuk sings, which is just so amazing. It, it's so human of him, right? It's something about human nature that hasn't changed over thousands of years. His response to these hard truths that he's wrestling with is to write a song, not only for himself, but for God's people. We now are looking at the words of his song and this song would sustain God's people in dark times and can sustain us in dark times as well. So Habakkuk's song, this, his final response to God's revelation in chapter three has three main movements or three main parts. There's a prayer, a vision, and a resolution. So a, a prayer, a vision, and a resol resolution. And so we'll, we'll break it down like that this morning. So first, let's look at the prayer. And you can find the prayer in verse 2. Verse 2 of chapter 3. Here's how Habakkuk starts his, his, his prayer song. Oh, Lord. I have heard the report of you and your work. Oh Lord, do I fear? 
in the midst of years, revive it in the midst of years, make it known in wrath. Remember mercy. So Habakkuk's first response, fear. He's, he's heard God's answer. He he's heard God's voice. God, God has explained to Habakkuk what he's up to. And Habakkuk has a proper fear of what's coming. He has a healthy fear of God and God's work. He, he stands in, in awe at the might and power and greatness of God and his plans. This is the right response to seeing and hearing from God. You may have heard this before. It, it's, it's a, kind of a famous quote, but in C.S. Lewis's The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, uh, you, you may know this, but Aslan is the great lion, and he kind of is a representation of Jesus. And there's a scene in The Lion, and the Witch, and the Road Wardrobe where one of the kids is about to meet Aslan, the great lion. And here's what, here's what takes place. Now listen to this. Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan. I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous about meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. See, isn't that insightful? His brothers and sisters, this is exactly true of God. God is not safe. He is not safe, but he is good. And he is the king. And like Aslan, he is approachable. You see, Habakkuk fears God. He has a healthy fear. But in faith, Habakkuk prays because he knows that God is good. Now, now in this prayer... In these first two verses, Habakkuk prays for three things. Look at verse two. First, he prays, in the midst of years, revive it. See, he has heard of God's faithfulness in the past to Israel. And so what he prays here is, God, do it again. God, you've saved us time and time again. Save us again. Revive your work of deliverance amongst us again. And then he prays for God to make this plain to everyone in the midst of the years, make it known, make it known, make it known that you will deliver us. Make it known to the people of the world that you will deliver your people, even though you bring judgment upon them. Lord, save us in a way that everyone will see. Put your faithfulness on display. That's what he's praying for. And he's praying this based on God's character and based on God's promises. But, but then he utters this third prayer. It's a couple of words. It's, it's a striking line. He says in wrath, remember mercy in wrath. Remember mercy. You see as Habakkuk has, has accepted the fact that God's wrath is rightfully coming to his people. God's wrath, God's anger is rightfully on Judah. They were wicked. 
And so Habakkuk's not praying for God not to be wrathful. No. Habakkuk knows that God's judgment is good and right. But he prays in wrath, remember mercy. He's praying, God, as as you're bringing your wrath and judgment rightfully on us, don't forget to be merciful, Lord. Be merciful in your wrath towards us. So think about that prayer. This is, this is the prayer of a, of a humble man. This is the prayer of a man who acknowledges God as God. He acknowledges God's righteousness. And this is the prayer of a man who acknowledges the sinfulness of sin. He's not making excuses. See, this is the prayer of faith. Faith prays because faith knows that it is weak and that God is the source of all things. See, faith doesn't try to make excuses for sin. Faith doesn't say, I know I'm sinful, but don't judge me. Faithfulness says, Lord, be merciful in your judgment. Now, this is true for Habakkuk and it's true for us. See, true living faith is not just a casual nod towards God. Yeah, God's going to take care of everything. It'll be fine. It's living faith prays, acts, and wrestles and interacts with God for itself and on behalf of others. And so Habakkuk does this. He prays for God's continued work and for God to be faithful to his promises. This is Habakkuk's prayer. But now we turn to Habakkuk's vision. And the vision is, is takes place in verse three through verse 15, but it breaks down kind of into two sections. And in, in verse three through verse seven, we have a vision of the Lord coming. And then in verses eight through 15, a, a description of God's destruction of Israel's enemy. So essentially Habakkuk sees God, God come. And then he sees God deliver. And all of this is saturated with with strange imagery to us, but it's, it's saturated with prophetic imagery and language. And, and what's really interesting about this part of Habakkuk song is that he borrows from a ton of other places in scripture. But, but the three kind of primary places he borrows from are Moses's song in Exodus 15, Deborah's song in Judges 5, and David's song in 2 Samuel 22. Even, even a bunch of phrases from the Psalms show up here. It's like a collaboration. But here's the interesting thing. All of these songs that he's kind of borrowing from and gaining inspiration from, Moses' song, Deborah's song, David's song, they all have a co- common theme. They're all songs of deliverance. Every single one of them is sung directly after God has just delivered the Jews from their enemy. So Moses' song comes right after the Israelites pass through the Red Sea. Deborah's song comes right after God has led Israel to victory over the Canaanites. And David's song, we see in 2 Samuel 22, verse 1 says this, And David spoke to the Lord the words of this song on the day when the Lord delivered him from the hand of all his enemies and from the hand of Saul. So in all these accounts, these songs are written after God's deliverance. But Habakkuk isn't. God hasn't delivered him yet. God hasn't delivered the people of Israel yet. So what is Habakkuk doing writing a deliverance song before he and Judah are delivered? 
Habakkuk is looking back to the great milestones of God's faithfulness in the past. He's looking back to the great milestones of God's deliverance of his people in the past. And now constructing his own song of deliverance. Why? Because this is what faith does during times of confusion. This is what faith does during times of suffering. This is how faith buckles its seatbelt when times get tough. This is how faith straps itself in to suffer. Habakkuk's knowledge of God's past faithfulness is driving his hope in God's future deliverance. You see how that works. Habakkuk is grounding himself and his faith and, and by extension, the people of Israel, the faithful people of Israel in God's character and actions of the past. God's character and actions of the past are the foundation for Habakkuk's faith for the present and for the future. God has always been faithful in the past. And so he always, and he always has delivered. And so he will deliver us again. The very nature of God himself is the ground of Habakkuk's hope. But don't forget unthinkable suffering and affliction is about to fall upon Habakkuk. Again, if you want to kind of get a feeling for what, what the, the siege of Jerusalem was like, read Lamentations. But Habakkuk looks to the very God he knows is bringing this upon him, knowing that none can deliver from God's hand but himself. And here's the other strange thing about this vision. And this happens in a lot of the prophets. And you can only, it's, this is hard to describe in words, but I think you'll get a sense as we read this. There's a sense in which the way that Habakkuk writes is very general. So there's a sense in which this prophecy of deliverance, this prayer for deliverance, this song has already been fulfilled. God did deliver the Israelites from the Babylonian empire. It was destroyed. God's judgment fell upon them. They are no more. But there's another sense in which there's still a future fulfillment of this prophecy. So this isn't just some ancient text that has nothing to do with us. There's this, this, this prophetic language applies to God's people at all times in all situations. And I, I think you'll get a feel for that. And we'll look at that a little bit later. So with that, let's, let's look at the words of the vision. Now, again, there's a lot of prophetic, prophetic language, so it's strange. So I'll try to explain it to you as we go along. So we're going to walk verse by verse through this and, and try to mine it for the depths of truth that are in it. Because from this, we gain a perspective of who God is. And we need this perspective. Too often in our day, uh, we have ceased reading the prophets because they are kind of hard to understand. But the prophets teach us about the very character of God. And so we need this. We need this. So, so let's look. So first we're going to see the coming of the Lord. Look at, look at verse three. God came from Temin and the Holy one from Mount Paran, Selah. So again, you kind of have to understand some geography, but basically Temin is in the South 
And, and Paran is, is, this, is another word to describe the Sinai wilderness. So where the Israelites met God on the mountain. And so what Habakkuk's doing here is he's describing God's movement in the Exodus out of Egypt. He brought his people out of Egypt into Sinai. Look at verse four. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of his praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from his hand. And there he veiled his power. Obaki here is, is painting a picture of God's brightness, God's glory, his splendor, his majesty. Literally lightning flashes from his hand. And this type of language is, is always used of God's presence. And here's what's going on. When you, when you look at accounts in scripture of people who come into God's presence, it's indescribable. And so that's why you see all of these strange images and these, they're stretching the bounds of language to try to describe what they see. But one of the things that always is used to describe God's presence is brightness or, or radiance. Mount Sinai. The mountain, when, when the, the Israelites come to Mount Sinai and God descends upon the mountain, the mountain is covered in fire and thunder and lightning, God's presence. When Moses goes up to the mountain and then comes down, his whole face is glowing so brightly from being in the presence of God that they can't look at him. It, it's literally his face is shining like the sun. And so they have to put a veil over it so that he could walk among the Israelites. Look at Exodus 34 verse 29 through 30 describes this. When Moses came down from Mount Sinai with the two tablets of the law of, of the testimony in his hand, as he came down from the mountain, Moses did not know that the skin of his face shone because he had been talking with God. Aaron and all the people of Israel saw Moses and behold, the skin of his face shone and they were afraid to come near him. So again, here we see that theme of fear again. And this isn't even of God. This is just of Moses because he's been in the presence of God. Now, just as a quick aside for your Bible trivia database, here you go. Put this in your pocket. If you've ever seen a medieval painting of Moses or Michelangelo's famous sculpture of Moses, he has horns and that's really weird. Here's where that comes from. When Jerome was translating the old Testament from Hebrew into Latin, the Hebrew word for shown is, is spelled exactly the same as to have horns. And so Jerome mistranslated it. And so in the Latin, it says that Moses came off the mountain with horns. And so the medieval church that, I mean, the Vulgate, the Latin Bible was the Bible of the church for 1500 years. And so that's why Moses is depicted with horns. It's just a little translation issue. So there you go for Bible trivia. All right. Anyway, uh, can't pass that text without mentioning that. So the point of the brightness of God, the, the, the point of, of this description is this brightness of God's presence, great light, fire, lightning, thunder. It's terrifying. It's terrifying. No one can gaze on God. Like you can't gaze on the sun. Again, we don't have time to go into all these accounts of people coming into God's presence, but you can look them up. Isaiah six, Ezekiel one. Think of the transfiguration of Christ. Christ is transfigured before the eyes of his 
three disciples, and in the words of Matthew, his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. Brightness accompanies God because he is holy. He is utterly unique. It is a manifestation of his utter otherness. And it is a clear indication that like the sun, God is not safe for human consumption in his pure essence. In the words of the apostle Paul in first Timothy, he dwells in unapproachable light. This is what we see here. But Habakkuk continues in verse five before him. So you get this image of, of the Lord kind of walking upon the earth before him went pestilence and plague followed at his heels. Plague, which is sickness, pestilence, kind of like crop destruction, you know, famine, things like that are frequent signs of divine judgment in scripture. In pagan religions of the day, they were separate deities. And so Habakkuk clearly sees here though, and is communicating to the Israelites and to us, they are no deities. They are tools in the hand of the Lord. Look what it says. Verse six, he stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. The message here is clear. When God comes in judgment, nothing can stop him. He created the earth, right? That's why he's measuring it. It's his. He owns it. The nations jump and scatter like crickets at his mere gaze. The foundations of the earth, right? The eternal mountains. Those were the first things that came forth in creation out of the water. The foundations of the earth, the most unshakable part of the earth scatter before the presence of the Lord. The hills grovel before him because he is eternal because he is God. Think of it like this. Have you ever stood at the base of a mountain uh, at at the base of a massive mountain and you look up, right? And you kind of just crane your neck and you almost get like dizzy because you just feel so small and so irrelevant and so powerless and helpless in the face of such grandeur. That's how the mountains look at God, but they're, they're nothing to him. That's the picture that Habakkuk is communicating. And then verse seven, I saw the tents of Kishon in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Habakkuk sees in his vision, the past enemies of Israel who God had destroyed, tremble at the coming of the Lord. The Lord has come for judgment. He's glorious. He's mighty. You can clearly see from Habakkuk's description that, that this is not a teddy bear God. He is good, but he is not safe. In fact, he's dangerous. The very creation Itself trembles before him. Plague and pestilence go before him and behind him. And this is the God in whom Habakkuk has placed his faith. The Lord has arrived in this vision. And now the Lord goes to war. Look at verse eight. 
Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped. At the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. In his warfare, God marshals the very forces of creation at his beck and call. God calls and floods envelop the earth. At God's command, the Red Sea splits and stands at attention and Pharaoh's army is utterly destroyed. God speaks and sun and moon stand still. So Joshua's army can have victory over its enemies. Again, all of these things, the deeps, the sun, the moon, the mountains in, in the religions of the day, they're all separate deities that the people would worship. And Habakkuk says, no, 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 no. They are all under the command of the Lord who created them. The Lord of heaven and earth. They're tools in his hand, in his warfare against his enemies. I want to pause here a second and ask a question. Now in this text, God is depicted as a divine warrior. That's the language is clear. He rode on his horses, the chariot of salvation. He stripped the sheath from his bow. In other words, he, he took his bow out and called for arrows. But does your, does your picture of God, does, does your idea of God have, have room for that? When you think of God, obviously there's, there's many images used of God in scripture. But when you think of God, does this one factor into your understanding of him? If not, and it's kind of a strange one for our time and our culture. But we need this. Not only because it's true of him, it's how he's revealed himself, but because it speaks to how he delivers his people. We do not worship. We do not serve a soft, safe God. We serve a good and righteous and loving God, but who delivers his people from their enemies with war, with judgment. So if you miss out on this, 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 This picture, this part of God, metaphorically speaking, you miss out on one of the ways that he has revealed himself to you for your edification. The Lord is a warrior. Shows up a couple of places in scripture. I I want you to see this because this is not just Habakkuk. From Genesis to Revelation, this shows up. Exodus 15, 3 through 4. This is Moses' song says this very clearly, the Lord is a man of war. The Lord is his name. Pharaoh's chariots and his hosts, he cast into the sea and his chosen officers were sunk in the Red Sea. 
Jeremiah 20, 11. But the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. You see, the image of, of God as a warrior is comfort to those in affliction. Jeremiah says, the Lord is with me as a dread warrior. Therefore, my persecutors will stumble. They will not overcome me. Isaiah 42, 13. The Lord goes out like a mighty man, like a man of war. He stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. The very title, Lord of hosts, appears 233 times in scripture. Literally could be translated the Lord of the armies. He is the Lord of the armies of heaven. The hosts of heaven. I think you get the picture. The Lord is pictured as a mighty warrior. And if you're thinking, well, yeah, that's like the Old Testament God, man. The New Testament God's like love, man. I don't know why I just made that voice. It just seemed right. But, but if that's what you're thinking, right? Like that's not Jesus. Then you clearly haven't read all the way to the right side of the book. If you read Revelation and we just, we just don't have time. Read Revelation 19. Jesus, when he returns, when he comes, comes to judge and make war on all wickedness. He comes as a warrior. Why is this important? Why is this image of the Lord as a warrior important? Other than the fact that because God has revealed it to us. Well, well, let's continue in Habakkuk's vision. Look at verse 13. Look what the Lord does with his might. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors who came like a whirlwind to scatter me rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty warriors. See, God crushes his enemies and the enemies of his people. This is the answer to Habakkuk's question. Verse eight, was your wrath against the rivers? The answer is no, no. God's wrath, God's anger was not against the rivers. God's anger is not against creation. It's against the wickedness of men. And, and look at the language here. This is a complete and utter destruction of God's enemies. Complete destruction. When God goes to war with his, with his enemies, there are no survivors. And it's kind of interesting. It says, you pierced with his own arrows, the heads of his warriors. Speaking of God's enemies. We see this throughout scripture, right? Think of Daniel in the lion's den. What, what happens to the people who got Daniel put in the lion's den? They're, once Daniel is delivered, they're thrown into the lion's den. Think of Haman in the book of Esther. He hangs on the gallows that he built. This is Habakkuk's vision. The Lord has delivered his people many times in the past. He will do it again. He will do it again. Habakkuk is sure of that. He will come again and deliver Judah, but not yet. 
See, Habakkuk still must endure suffering. He still must endure the invasion that is about to come upon Judah. He still must endure devastation, starvation, and war. And although his faith is in the Lord, that doesn't mean he's not scared. We've heard his prayer and we've seen his vision. Now, now look at his response. The closing words of this wonderful book, which, which are just some of the most powerful and treasured words to me in, in all of scripture. Listen to how Habakkuk responds. This is his resolution in the face of everything that we've heard over the last two to three weeks. Verse 15. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters into my bones. My legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon the people who invade us. Though the fig tree should not blossom, nor fruit beyond the vines, the produce of the olive fail and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God, the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's. He makes me tread on high places. To the choir master with stringed instruments. Remember last week when we saw Habakkuk 2.4? The righteous shall live by his faith. This is what that looks like. This is a living picture of what it looks like to live by faith. Devastation and suffering is about to befall Habakkuk at the hands of the Lord. Yet he will wait quietly for the day of trouble to come upon God's enemies. He will wait quietly for God to deliver in his own timing. And in the meantime, no matter what comes, starvation, suffering, death, destruction, he will take joy in the God of his salvation. Why? Because God is his strength. Just think about that for a second. I mean, I mean, look at, look, look at the words. Verse 16, the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. This is to put it in modern terms. There's, there's no food on the shelves. There's, I mean, the, they're, they're starving. There's no, there's no money. Everything has been taken away. Every physical thing has been taken away. And yet he will trust in the Lord. So I want, I want you to notice a couple of things from this last piece of text. N number one, God's faithful people are not immune from suffering. This, this text, this book, there are many others in scripture, but this one is a prosperity gospel destroyer. There are people out there today on TV, 
on YouTube, wherever, in Barnes and Noble, that will tell you that if you are faithful to God, your life will be better. You will prosper materially. You will have health, wealth. You will be wise. It's not true. It may happen to you, but that's actually not a promise that we find in scripture. Look at Habakkuk. Habakkuk was living by faith. The righteous shall live by faith. That's what he's doing. And look at his life. It's awful. It's awful. Just because you are trusting in God does not mean you won't suffer. So if, if you are going through something right now, if, if there is some trial that is plaguing you, it's not because God has abandoned you. It's not because you are unfaithful. God's faithful people suffer. Even horrifically at times. This was true for Habakkuk and many others in the Old Testament. And this was true of Christ and Paul and many others in the New Testament. Suffering and trial is actually is promised to God's people. It's not the opposite way. Did you you hear what first Peter four said when they did the scripture reading? Brothers and sisters, do not be surprised when the fiery trial comes upon you. This is coming. Christ himself said, in this world, you will have tribulation. Trials, affliction, suffering, trouble. You will have that in this life. Scripture acknowledges that. Don't try to escape it, but be faithful in the midst of it. Know that God is with you and that he will Deliver. And that brings us to our second thing that I want you to see in this. God's people can rejoice in him. Even in the midst of the most intense suffering, knowing that he will ultimately deliver them. God's people can rejoice in him in the midst of even the most painful and intense suffering, knowing he will ultimately deliver them. God himself is Habakkuk's strength. Habakkuk's joy, Habakkuk's strength is not found in things that can be taken away. It's found in God. And if God is your strength, if God is your hope, if God is your joy, then nothing can shake you from that. It doesn't mean that you'll avoid suffering. It doesn't mean that you'll avoid pain, but it means that in the midst of suffering and pain, you still have your source of hope and joy. And you can rejoice in the midst of that means if God is your strength, that you don't have to be strong. So, so this text isn't saying, well, when suffering comes, just suck it up, be strong. You can do it. It's actually saying the opposite. He says, I have no strength left. God is my strength. God works powerfully in us when we are weak and he is our strength. If God is our strength, if God is your strength, even when you lose everything, You still have the one thing that you need and want most, God himself. Cling to him, brothers and sisters. Not only is he all that we need, he is all that we have. This this type of faith, there are countless examples of this type of faith throughout church history, throughout scripture. 
But I want to show you just one. And since it's Mother's Day, it's the example of a mother. And it's appropriate for today. Sarah Edwards was the the wife of the famous preacher, Jonathan Edwards, in the the 18th century, 1700s. And uh, ironically, for our timing now, Jonathan Edwards actually died um, from taking a vaccine that failed. Um, But so he died unexpectedly around the age of 50. And right after his death, his wife, Sarah, um, by the way, look up her story. What an amazing woman. Uh, right after his death, his wife, Sarah writes this to, to his, one of their daughters. Her, their daughter had written her a letter saying how sad she was and how painful this was to lose her father. Here's what Sarah says. My very dear child, what shall I say? A holy and good God has covered us with a dark cloud. Oh, that we may kiss the rod and lay our hands upon our mouths. The Lord has done it. He has made me adore his goodness that we had him for so long. Speaking of Jonathan Edwards. But my God lives and he has my heart. Oh, what a legacy my husband and your father has left us. We are all given to God and there I am and love to be. Your affectionate mother, Sarah Edwards. Oh, that God would give us faith like this. She does exactly what Habakkuk does. She acknowledges God's sovereignty over it. She thanks him for the good things that she has received at God's hands. And even the painful things, she resolves to trust in God in the midst of it. Why? Because God is her strength. My God lives and he has my heart. So even though her husband was taken from her, her God lives. God has her heart. She says, we are all given to God and there I am and love to be. What, what a beautiful display of this type of faith. May God be your strength. May God be your joy. Pray that you would have this faith, even in the midst of great trials and great suffering. But, but this type of faith doesn't come out of nowhere. It's not just an abstract idea. This type of faith comes from knowing God and knowing who he is comes from knowing what he has done in the past and what he promises to do in the future. See, Habakkuk had faith in God because he knew that God had delivered Israel in the past and he knew that God would deliver again in the future. And the same was true for Sarah Edwards and the same must be true for us. If Habakkuk had reason to trust in God, how much more do we have? Habakkuk, saw the radiance of God's glory in a vision. We have seen the radiance of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, the incarnate son of God. Habakkuk saw the creation bow to the Lord at his coming, but we have seen the creation bow to the Lord in his death upon a cross. We have seen the wind and the waves obey him. Brothers and sisters, Habakkuk looked back to the Exodus as the prime example of God's faithfulness. We look back to that as well, but we look back to the cross of Christ. When God led us out of slavery to sin into his righteousness, Habakkuk had a promise that he would live somehow by his faith in the future. 
Brothers and sisters, we have a guarantee. We have seen the resurrection of the very son of God as the first fruits of what will happen to all who trust in him. I quoted this verse earlier and I intentionally left the end off. Jesus told his disciples and told us in this world, you will have tribulation. Life will be hard and painful. But then he said, but take heart. I have overcome the world. Jesus Christ has conquered his enemies and our enemies. He has conquered sin, death, and the devil. And even though we still suffer and suffer greatly in this life, he is returning. And much like Habakkuk, look to the future hope of deliverance. We look to the return of Christ as our hope of deliverance. That is how we endure suffering, brothers and sisters. We, we look back at the cross of Christ, the cross and the resurrection, at the suffering of Christ. We look back to the resurrection, the victory of Christ over his enemies. And we look forward to the promise of his coming, knowing that one day he will vanquish and destroy every enemy. Not just the physical enemies of, of empires, but he will destroy sin. He will destroy pain. He will destroy evil. He will destroy disease. And even death itself will be cast finally and eternally into the lake of fire. Everything will be set right. All things will be made new. Revelation tells us God is sovereign. We've seen that in Habakkuk. Nothing will stop his purposes and it will not delay. We do not serve a safe, cuddly, comfortable God who is powerless to help us. Now we serve a, a mighty sovereign over all creation. God who will have his victory in the end. That is our hope brothers and sisters. He is our hope. So in the midst of the, of the dark night, remind yourself of these things. That's what Habakkuk did. He wrote a song. He sung about God's faithfulness. Even if every earthly good is stripped away from you, you have God himself in the face of Jesus Christ. You have his spirit dwelling within you. Look back, look forward and live by faith. Rejoice in the God of your salvation. Take joy in God, your strength. He will enable you to endure. You can trust him. Trust his plan and his timing, even when it doesn't make sense to you. Let's close with a verse from the hymn we sang right before this message. Whatever my God ordains is right. Here shall my stand be taken. Though sorrow, need, or death be mine, yet I am not forsaken. My father's care is round me there. He holds me that I shall not fall. And so to him, I leave it all. And so to him, I leave it all. Let's pray. Heavenly father, your word is powerful. Father, we thank you that in your word, you have given us a sure and steady hope 
in times of suffering. God, my, my prayer for all of us this morning, but, but especially those who are listening, who are in the midst of a time like this. Father, be their strength. Be their hope. Teach them, help them, enable them, not only to endure faithfully, but to rejoice in you. Lord, we can do none of these things in our own strength. God, be our strength when we have none. We ask this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. It's a really powerful reminder that we have so much to look, um, to look back to, so much more than Habakkuk had. Um, and we can truly say all glory be to Christ, which is what we're going to sing together um, because we know that uh, his plan is good and we can trust him. So church, if you will sing with me this last song, all glory be to Christ. <laughs> 